My beautiful friends and loves, after a week off, I am beyond excited to be back with you bringing a brand new set of tales to tickle your strangest delights. As humans, we have a long history of figuring out what we deem polite and rude in the various different societies we formed and functioned in. Things that have evolved naturally over time, stemming from biological and gradual societal needs, such as not talking with your mouth full of food, as well as those more refined pinky-up pieces of etiquette that are used for more specific occasions, occasions such as when there are more than three forks at one meal. Not all cultures, or even people within a single society, have the same views on etiquette. However, we would likely universally agree that a random punch to the head isn't polite, and a deafening yell to the face won't get you any dates, sans possibly at a heavy metal concert. Unless, of course, if you're in the right place in nature. <laughs> Welcome. I'm Rocket Fox. Join me for nature's etiquette class this week as we embrace the strange. Before we get started, I wanted to take a quick moment to give a huge thank you to you. This past week, with the shooting of three Asian spas and the deaths of eight people in Atlanta, it's been a harrowing experience for many in the AAPI, or Asian American and Pacific Islander community. It has often felt like our experiences go unheard, and our stories don't matter. While on a broader scale, we are expected to show up for the support of others. As an Asian American woman, I want to thank you for listening and for your support as I share these stories that I think are strange and marvelous. It truly means the world to me. And without further ado, on we go. What does science call an attack? That is a swift, explosive motion with one arm. Beneath the warm surface of the ocean, at Islet Israel, PhD student at the University of Lisbon and the Max Planck Institute of Animal Behavior, Eduardo Sampaio, was studying the hunting patterns of the day octopus when he observed an answer. The day octopus, or big blue octopus as it's also called, is a master of disguise, able to change its color and texture to match the ground as it creeps along the ocean floor, or works to attract a tasty crab. Growing from 0.1 to a respectable little over 14 pounds, or 67 to 6,500 grams, within its year to 15 month lifespan, it's no surprise this cephalopod needs a lot of food to fuel that size journey. While many times the octopus hunts alone, it turns out there are times they partner with another hunter on the block, a reef grouper. 
These two go after the same smaller fish using an incredible method to communicate with one another. As the prey zips and darts around the reef, the grouper gives chase, cornering the smaller fish in a crevice too small to follow. At this point, the grouper turns a pale color, does a fishy headstand, and wiggles its butt around to grab the octopus's attention. Look at me! As anyone might do when trying to get the attention of a co-worker. At which point, the octopus saunters over, reaches an arm into the crevice to grab the smaller fish. At this point, one of two things will happen. The octopus nabs the fish and enjoys a tasty meal, or the fish darts away in fright, right out of the hole and into the grouper's mouth. Either way, someone wins and the trade-off is frequent enough and both benefit enough that the partnership continues. Of course, that's until the swift, explosive attack with one arm. And I'll give you eight guesses who's doing the attacking. When Sampaio witnessed the sudden tentacle of fury, he recalled that he, quote, laughed out loud and almost choked on his own regulator. It's not like these feisty-fisted fighters had never lashed out before. Octopi are known to strike with an arm if being attacked or when fighting over food. However, this was the first time the violence had been seemingly unprovoked and between partners in hunting. And this was not an isolated incident. Sampaio saw it, coincidentally, eight times while diving in Islet and El Qasir, Egypt, although he was able to avoid any unpleasant regulator incidents after that first surprise. Interestingly, there were incidents when, after the octopus attack, for example with a gold-saddled goatfish, the fish would get pushed out of its fishy group, after which the octopus would leave it alone. And sometimes it would eventually come back, and sometimes it wouldn't. There is a decent amount of speculation as to why the octopus would be going MMA on its collaborator. Sampaio, who was also the lead author of the study, pointed out that while the partnerships are based on being mutually beneficial, that doesn't necessarily mean that each creature is looking out for the other's best interests. Perhaps sometimes a tempting meal is within reach and the octopus decides to go rogue. Perhaps it may be punishment to the fish in an attempt to teach it to be a better partner in the future. But one thing is likely. As Sampaio puts it, Quote, we suspect the main reason is related to prey opportunities, of course, because that is also the reason why these groups naturally form in the first place. Or, like in every workplace, some octopi are just jerks. Punching jerks. many examples of proposed or presumed etiquette when it comes to the complex world of romance, many of which can be equally tricky and hard to navigate for either partner involved in the dance of courtship. How long does one wait before texting again if one hasn't heard a response? 
who makes the first move, and so forth and so on. Even in the animal kingdom, there are delicate displays of vibrant color, precise mirrored movements, beautiful songs screamed directly into the face of potential mates. Ah, the sound of love. In the higher altitudes of South and Central America, if you listen closely or farly, really from any distance, you'll hear it. That strange, almost metallic trill of sound that pierces through the air like a shockwave with that tonal rise at the end. It's the call of the male white bellbird. With a wattle-adorned mouth that snaps open like a shocked muppet, this 11-inch or 28-centimeter tall bird belts a tune that can not only be heard from a mile away, but is the loudest of any bird alive at 125 decibels. Both louder than a jackhammer, it's also three times louder than the screaming piha, which was the previous record holder for the loudest bird. Now, being the best or most of anything isn't something to take, well, quietly. And the male bellbird is the perfect example of taking this to the extreme. When Mario Conhaft, the curator of birds at the National Institute of Amazonian Research in Brazil, and Dr. Jeffrey Podos, a professor specializing in bioacoustics at the University of Massachusetts in Amherst, joined forces to study the spectacle of sound in 2018. They had to use special noise meters that are more commonly used to monitor industrial noise levels because nothing else would quite do the trick. They also brought laser rangefinders so that they could figure out exactly how far away these birds were. The bellbird's repertoire itself consists of two songs, a long one and a short one. Both are relatively straightforward, with the shorter being the louder of the two. As it seems, nature's trade-off is simplicity for volume. That and rock-hard abs. Seriously, when Cone Haft had visited the Sierra do Aipo, a northern Brazilian peak, a year before his and Dr. Podos's official study, he had the opportunity to examine a deceased bellbird specimen, of which... He said it had this, quote, really ripped washboard stomach. The thinking being that if these birds didn't, the sheer force behind producing that kind of sound could literally blow their guts out, which would definitely put a damper on the mood. Bringing us to their sense of etiquette when it comes to courtship. You see, when most birds court others via a loud song, once the male has the female's attention, he tends to tone it down a little bit so he doesn't, according to the article, quote, startle her. The bellbird, however, has a very interesting strategy. When a female shows interest and the two are drawn together, the male does not, in fact, tone down his song. Staying at the same volume, he begins his refrain facing away from her. Then, when the crucial moment comes, he, quote, whips around to blast the loudest, record-setting note right into her face. 
Now, there is actually no telling at this point if this method actually works, as the scientists have never actually seen any of the male bellbirds uh, close the deal. As Dr. Potos puts it, quote, We never saw what a really good male does. The ones we saw might have just been losers. And while I'm not sure if I would be altogether too interested in someone shrieking a sweet nothing into my face to get my attention, it seems these birds as a species aren't lacking in population, so, socially awkward as we may see it, it at least seems to be working for them. story I have for you this week deals with a larger kind of etiquette, and one that I think easily spans the gap between species for the following creature, and many others, as well as ourselves. In 2011, three researchers, Inbal Ben Ami Bartal, Dr. Jean Desity, and Dr. Peggy Mason, all of the University of Chicago, were immersed in a study funded by the National Institutes of Health's National Institute on Drug Abuse and the National Science Foundation. The question was, what rats would do when presented with the various scenarios involving another caged rat and tasty chocolate chips? The study began getting rats used to the scenarios. In all of the caged scenarios, there was a clear acrylic tube sealed with a latch that a rat could open from the outside. Sometimes, a rat would be placed in the cage with the tube empty. Nothing would happen. Sometimes, a rat would be placed in a cage with a stuffed rat in the tube, like a plush toy. Nothing would happen. But then sometimes, a rat would be placed in a cage with another rat in the tube. After an average of seven sessions a day, the free rat learned to quickly open the tube for the caged rat, and both would run around the cage together to explore. Then, in another scenario, the free rat was placed in a cage where it had access and ability to open the tube, but would not have access to the other rat to play with when freed. Still, the rat would free the imprisoned one, even without the incentive of having a playmate. So a playmate wasn't the incentive. And it was interesting for sure, but what would happen when the free rat was presented with a choice, and when the choice became a little harder and more tempting? The next series of tests presented this new challenge. A rat would be placed in the cage with two tubes, one containing a rat and the other containing five delicious, delicious chocolate chips. The free rat could easily open both. So it wasn't necessarily one or the other. The free one could just choose to open the tube with the chocolate chips first, allowing themselves all, and then free the other rat. Interestingly enough, 
In each test, there was really no order to which the rats opened the tubes, but each time the free rat gave its buddy on average 1.5 chocolate chips. In the tests where the second tube was empty, the free rat ate all five chips itself. This took the scientists off guard. Desity shared that it, quote, is the first evidence of helping behavior triggered by empathy in rats. Dr. Mason added that, quote, helping their cage mates is on par with chocolate. He can hog the entire stash if he wanted to, and he does not. But this isn't where it ends. A couple years later, in 2015, a study out of Kwansei Gakuen University in Japan put the idea of rat empathy further to the test. They devised a setup in which one side of the clear acrylic box featured a space where a rat would have to swim in a pool of water, an experience that rats do not enjoy. And, as an aside, the study adds that the rats were never at risk of dying. There was a ledge for them to hold on to. They just really didn't like it. On the other side of the box, there was a nice, dry platform. But the only way up was if a little door in the clear wall separating the two was opened by, you guessed it, the rat on the dry side. Within days of the experiment's start, the dry rat was regularly opening the door for the swimming rat. Two major points of interest here. The first being that if the rat on the watery side wasn't in water, such as if that side was dry, the rat on the platform would just ignore the door demonstrating it wasn't really a buddy drive that caused the consistent door opening. The second being that rats who had experienced the unpleasant swimming when put onto the dry platform as the door opener learned to save the swimming rat in that scenario much faster than rats who had not experienced the water, perhaps suggesting that the rat's own lived experience and empathy lended to its urgency of helping its fellow rat. Then, the team one-upped the test. For this final challenge, the rat on the platform was presented with two doors and could choose only one, either a swimming rat or access to more tasty chocolate chips. What the team found was that 50 to 80% of the time, the rats chose to rescue the swimming rat, demonstrating that the desire to help was at least half as much a driving motivator as obtaining a delicious snack for themselves. At the end of the day, it begins to support a growing body of evidence that there is something more deeply ingrained within us that allows us empathy and drives us to help one another. Something much deeper than etiquette taught that you could say is in our nature. Cause I just need Thank you again so much for joining me. If you would like to help support the podcast for just a dollar a month, 
and also get access to the bonus stories, such as rats driving tiny cars, head over to patreon.com slash rocketfox. If you're enjoying the show, please consider leaving a five-star rating, review, or just sharing the podcast with someone you know who also may dig the unusual. It means beyond the world to me to have your ear and be able to tell and share these stories about topics I'm passionate about. I write, research, edit, produce, and do all of the things myself, and am so honored to be able to share them with you. To visit me online, check out fantasticallystrange.com or give a follow at fantasticallystrange on Instagram or fantasticoddpod on Twitter. If you have any topics you'd like to see, any questions, comments, or just to say hi, email me at fantasticallystrange at rocketfox.com. All sources are linked and credited in the show info. The amazing logo illustration is by Constance Hermit, and the killer intro song, Hey Dorothy, is by Cruise Machine. Thank you so much again, and I cannot wait to see you next time. Thank you.